Hello again. This is Dean Hess, editor of Respiratory Care. I hope that everyone is enjoying the summer. We're pleased to bring you the August issue of Respiratory Care, which you might consider adding to your beach reading list. Sarah Forge will first read the abstracts of this month's papers, and I will return with some commentary of my own. We begin this issue with a paper, Clinical and Radiologic Distinctions Between Secondary Bronchiolitis Obliterans Organizing Pneumonia and Cryptogenic Organizing Pneumonia by Vasu et al. from the Thomas Jefferson University in Philadelphia. They describe the clinical and radiologic features of patients with bronchiolitis obliterans organizing pneumonia, commonly referred to simply as BOOP. The medical records of 33 patients with diagnosis of BOOP on surgical lung biopsy over a 10-year time period were reviewed retrospectively. The authors obtained data on clinical and radiologic manifestations, etiology, and outcome of these patients. Dyspnea was the most common problem, followed by dry cough and fever. Crackles was the most common physical finding. Mean age at diagnosis of BOOP was 59 years and 42% were females. The main radiologic manifestation was bilateral patchy consolidation. Most patients had favorable prognosis. However, 17% did not respond to treatment. Female sex was more common in cryptogenic organizing pneumonia, or COP, than in secondary BOOP. Patients with COP had longer symptom duration before the diagnosis than secondary BOOP. Patients with secondary BOOP reported fever more frequently compared to COP. Pleural effusion was present in 60% of patients with secondary BOOP, whereas none of the patients with COP had effusion. The authors concluded that COP and secondary BOOP have diverse clinical and radiologic manifestations. Patients with secondary BOOP are more symptomatic. Both COP and secondary BOOP patients have good prognosis and most respond to treatment with corticosteroids or by discontinuing the injurious drug. Feasibility of using email counseling as part of a smoking cessation program is by Polosa et al. from Catania, Italy. This pilot study examined the feasibility of integrating email consultation messages in a smoking cessation program for smokers willing to quit and with internet access. At baseline, demographic data, smoking history, and expired carbon monoxide levels were collected at a clinic visit. The subjects were provided with the specialist's email address and instructed to prepare email messages containing simple and clear information about their quitting progress. The counselor offered email counseling throughout the smoking cessation program. A six-month follow-up visit was arranged, at which abstinence was reviewed. Of the 30 participants initially enrolled in the study, 70% attended the follow-up six-month visit. Email counseling was more frequently offered to the participants who completed the study compared to those lost to follow-up. Comparisons with baseline exhaled carbon monoxide values showed a significant within-group reduction at six months after smoking cessation in the quitters compared to smoking cessation failures. Sustained smoking abstinence at six months was 37%. The authors conclude that the integration of email consultation 
consultation counseling in a smoking cessation intervention is feasible and effective. Gold from Loma Linda University in Loma Linda, California presents the 2007 Gold Guidelines, a Comprehensive Care Framework. Comprehensive management of COPD includes proper assessment, monitoring of disease, reduction of risk factors, the management of stable COPD, and the prevention and management of exacerbations. The 2007 COPD guidelines from the Global Initiative for Chronic Obstructive Lung Disease, commonly called the GOLD guidelines, address each of these aspects for COPD management in detail and provide evidence-based recommendations for patients and healthcare professionals. Reduction of risk factors emphasizes the importance of smoking cessation and control of environmental indoor and outdoor pollutants. The management of COPD must be individualized. Aerosol administration of bronchodilators is the most effective method of reducing the work of breathing and alleviating dyspnea. Glucocorticosteroid therapy is recommended to reduce the frequency of exacerbations and improve health-related quality of life for patients with stage 3 and 4 COPD. Pulmonary rehabilitation proves effective in relieving symptoms, improving quality of life, and increasing patients' physical and emotional participation in activities of daily life. Oxygen therapy is essential for patients with substantial hypoxia. Patients with COPD and respiratory failure may benefit from non-invasive ventilation. Surgery may play a limited role in the management of selected patients with COPD. Since exacerbations influence lung function and clinical decline in patients with COPD and contribute to the cost of caring for this disease, efforts must be directed at prevention and management of exacerbations. In addition to controlled oxygen therapy, antimicrobials, brief courses of systemic corticosteroids, and on occasion non-invasive or invasive mechanical ventilation may play a role. The role of respiratory therapists in the prevention, diagnosis, and management of stable COPD and exacerbations is absolutely essential if the goals of the 2007 Global Initiative for Chronic Obstructive Lung Disease guidelines are to be attained. Next, we have the paper, Spirometry for the Diagnosis and Management of Chronic Obstructive Pulmonary Disease, by McIntyre from Duke University in Durham, North Carolina. Spirometric testing is one of the oldest clinical tests still in use today. It is a straightforward test that has the patient maximally exhale from total lung capacity. The key measurements are FEV1 and the vital capacity. Spirometric testing utility, however, depends heavily upon the quality of equipment, the patient's cooperation, and the skill of the technician performing the test. Spirometry should thus be considered a medical test and not simply a vital sign that can be performed by minimally trained personnel. In obstructive lung diseases such as COPD, the characteristic change in spirometry is a reduction in FEV1 with respect to the vital capacity.
Using this measurement can diagnose the presence and severity of airway obstruction. This can be used to guide therapies and predict outcomes. Using spirometry to screen for obstructive lung disease, however, can be problematic, and the effect of screening on outcomes has yet to be demonstrated. A stepwise approach management of stable COPD with inhaled pharmacotherapy, a review, is by Restrepo from the University of Texas Health Science Center in San Antonio, Texas. Although existing evidence confirms that no pharmacologic agent ameliorates the decline in the lung function or changes the prognosis of COPD, inhaled pharmacotherapy is a critical component of the management for patients suffering with COPD. Inhaled pharmacology is directed to provide immediate relief of symptoms and restore functional capacity in treatment of stable COPD. While COPD may not be cured, knowledge and implementation of currently available guidelines provide the healthcare provider alternatives to treat the disease effectively. Respiratory therapists play an important role in the implementation of these guidelines since they are often responsible for educating patients on the correct use of the inhalers. This manuscript reviews current evidence regarding the use of inhaled pharmacotherapy in the treatment of COPD and provides a guided approach to the use of different agents in stable COPD. Goodfellow from the Georgia State University in Atlanta, Georgia, and Waugh from the University of Alabama in Birmingham, Alabama, present the paper, Tobacco Treatment and Prevention, What Works and Why? Tobacco abuse is one of the main reasons that chronic obstructive pulmonary disease is the fourth leading cause of death in the United States. Many people kick the habit easily, while others struggle through a difficult cycle of addiction. Respiratory therapists often have contact with patients with chronic lung disease who want to quit smoking but do not know where to begin. Smoking bans and clean air laws are in place across the United States, but this is not enough for a complete tobacco treatment and prevention program. For any successful disease management program, tobacco control, education, and support must be included. Studies show that when pharmacologic interventions are used along with appropriate counseling and other resources, the success of tobacco cessation increases. This must be understood because if the regulatory efforts of our governing bodies are not enough, and if patients do not receive the care that is essential for disease management and rehabilitation, then how will our role as respiratory therapists matter in any healthcare system of the future? The respiratory therapist plays a key role in asking patients, especially newly diagnosed patients with chronic lung disease, if they are smokers and if they are interested in tobacco use interventions. This is a role that should not be taken lightly. Pulmonary Rehabilitation and Chronic Lung Disease, Opportunities for the Respiratory Therapist, is by Carlin from Allegheny General Hospital in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Pulmonary rehabilitation is a core component of the management of a patient with chronic lung disease. The respiratory therapist plays a vital role in pulmonary rehabilitation. 
uncovering patients who are eligible for pulmonary rehabilitation, individualized assessment of patients prior to entry into the program, providing education regarding the patient's disease, and active participation in the exercise and training programs are just a few of the ways that the respiratory therapist can participate in this very important activity for patients with chronic lung disease. Dunn from Fullerton, California presents the clinical impact of new long-term oxygen therapy technology. Long-term oxygen therapy improves survival for patients afflicted with severe chronic obstructive pulmonary disease and may also reduce the incidence of repeat hospitalization due to exacerbations. When properly dosed and titrated, long-term oxygen therapy has been shown to improve exercise tolerance, thereby enhancing the overall health-related quality of life for this growing patient population. Equipment used to provide long-term oxygen therapy is undergoing a radical transformation, with newer delivery devices offering a sharp contrast to older, more traditional home oxygen equipment. This newer approach to providing long-term oxygen therapy, commonly referred to as non-delivery technology, affords long-term oxygen therapy users unprecedented freedom since they are no longer dependent on home care providers for repeat deliveries to replenish or replace depleted oxygen contents. Instead, non-delivery long-term oxygen therapy equipment is self-sufficient and able to provide all of the oxygen needed to meet both stationary and ambulatory requirements. However, several models of the newer long-term oxygen therapy equipment have certain operational and performance limitations. Accordingly, in order to preclude unintended desaturation with newer long-term oxygen therapy devices, each patient must undergo an individualized pulse oximetry titration study by a knowledgeable and experienced respiratory therapist to ensure optimum dosing under all conditions of use. A wide variety of respiratory exposures and underlying conditions are associated with organizing pneumonia. These include inhalation of toxic fumes, immunologic and connective tissue disorders, inflammatory bowel disease, human immunodeficiency virus infection, common variable immune deficiency, radiation therapy, myelodysplastic syndrome, drug reactions, malignant disease, bone marrow or solid organ transplantation, and others. Bronchiolitis obliterans organizing pneumonia, or BOOP, is a distinct pattern of reaction of the lung to injury. However, Evidence of bronchiolitis is variably present or entirely absent in some patients. Moreover, the term BOOP causes confusion with other forms of bronchiolitis obliterans. So we now classify the idiopathic form of BOOP as cryptogenic organizing pneumonia, or COP, and the secondary form as secondary organizing pneumonia, or SOP. Vasu et al., in their retrospective study of 33 patients, report that COP and secondary BOOP have diverse clinical and radiologic manifestations. Patients with secondary BOOP are more symptomatic. Patients with either COP or secondary BOOP have a good prognosis and most respond to treatment with corticosteroids or by discontinuing the injurious drug. As pointed out in the editorial by Hefter, this report adds to the sparse literature that compares these two forms of organizing pneumonia. 
our existing topology that separates SOP from COP may represent a helpful system in our present state of limited knowledge, but it should not establish that these two entities represent distinct diseases. The need for more effective smoking cessation interventions is not debated. However, access to these services can be problematic in real life. Email messages may be a convenient alternative to deliver smoking cessation interventions. In their study, Pelosa et al. found that integration of email consultation counseling in a smoking cessation intervention is feasible and effective. Nearly 37% of those who participated in email counseling remained abstinent for six months following the smoking cessation program, which is comparable to other strategies. As Optol points out in his editorial, this technology shows promise and has been applied to multiple other medical problems. It may be effective, but with some limitations and concerns. A frequently cited concern of patients and providers relates to the confidentiality and security of the email communication and how email makes its way into the patient record. As healthcare providers and their patients become increasingly wired, email is likely to be used increasingly as a means of communication between patients and their clinical teams. We are pleased to publish six papers this month from the symposium, COPD, Empowering Respiratory Therapists to Make a Difference. This symposium was presented as part of the 2008 AARC International Respiratory Congress in Anaheim. As a group, these provide a state-of-the-art overview of chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. The recommendations of the Global Initiative for Chronic Obstructive Lung Disease, or GOLD guidelines, have become the standard for prevention, diagnosis, and treatment of COPD. An important part of the GOLD guidelines is a classification of COPD severity based on spirometry. As GOLD indicates, respiratory therapists are essential in the prevention, diagnosis and management of acute and stable COPD if the goals of the GOLD guidelines are to be attained. As McIntyre points out, spirometric testing depends heavily on the quality of equipment, patient cooperation, and the skill of the technologist performing the test. Spirometry should be considered a medical test and must be performed by trained personnel. As McIntyre appropriately suggests, using spirometry to screen for obstructive lung disease and the effect of screening on patients' outcomes have yet to be determined. Inhaled pharmacotherapy is a critical component of the management of patients with COPD. Although it provides immediate relief of symptoms, no pharmacologic agent ameliorates the decline in lung function or changes the clinical prognosis of patients with COPD. As reviewed by Restrepo, a stepwise approach is often used for the management of stable COPD with inhaled medications. The two categories of inhaled drugs used in the management of stable COPD are bronchodilators and corticosteroids. Key to the effectiveness of these is proper use of the inhaler. Respiratory therapists play an important role in the care of patients with COPD by educating patients in the correct use of inhalers. Respiratory therapists often have contact with patients with COPD who want to quit smoking but do not know where to begin. In their paper, Goodfellow and Woe discuss issues related to tobacco treatment and prevention. Many patients want to quit smoking but struggle through a difficult cycle of addiction. 
key to a successful smoking cessation program is education, along with pharmacologic interventions and counseling. The respiratory therapist plays an important role in asking patients if they are smokers and if they are interested in a smoking cessation program. Another important aspect of the care of patients with COPD is pulmonary rehabilitation. The rationale for pulmonary rehabilitation, patient assessment, components of care, and outcome measurements are described by Carlin. As he points out, identifying patients who are eligible for pulmonary rehabilitation, assessing of patients prior to entry into the program, providing education regarding the patient's disease, and participating in the exercise and training programs are ways that respiratory therapists can be involved in pulmonary rehabilitation of patients with COPD. As reviewed by Dunn, long-term oxygen therapy improves survival for patients with severe COPD. Equipment for long-term oxygen has changed in important ways in recent years. The newest approach to long-term oxygen therapy uses equipment that is self-sufficient and able to provide all of the oxygen needs to meet both stationary and ambulatory requirements. Because this equipment has operational and performance limitations, patients must undergo individualized pulse oximetry titration to ensure optimum dosing under all conditions of use. Not every patient can be effectively oxygenated with every type of device. Dunn also appropriately makes the plea that long-term oxygen should be prescribed to target oxygen saturation rather than a specific flow, thus allowing the delivered dose to be based on the patient's individual needs as determined by their lifestyle and activities of daily living. Irani et al. report an interesting case of recurrent right-sided pleural effusion two years after ventriculopleural shunt insertion. As Barrero points out in his editorial, making a correct diagnosis for pleural effusions can be difficult, and understanding the various diagnostic techniques and their limitations is important in identifying the causes of the underlying disease process. The teaching case this month, by Dixon and Lux, is one of toluene toxicity as a cause of elevated anion gap metabolic acidosis. To receive the contents of this and past issues of the journal, visit our website at www.rcjournal.com. There you can also subscribe to receive podcasts of future issues.